welcome to the Evidence-Based EdTech podcast series. This is a joint venture between Educate and the EdTech podcast. My name's Rose Luckin. I'm a professor at University College London, and I'm also the founder of Educate Ventures Research. And today, we're going to be looking at diversity, equity, inclusion, and ethics, trying to understand how we build ethical learning tools that can be led by evidence and that really do work. How does the existing technology in our homes and classrooms accommodate learners from a variety of backgrounds, abilities, and how do we ensure it's developed with inclusivity in mind from conception right on through to the gathering of data uh, that we know technology needs in order to function for the widest possible audience? What are our concerns in this area? And what do we need to be wary about? What lessons can we learn and how can we do better? And I'm really excited because I've got a great group of guests who have huge expertise in this area in our little pod Zoom studio today. Um, we have Charlotte Webb, who's the co-founder of the Feminist Internet. We have Daisy Creswell, who's founder and strategy writer for Make Good Trouble. And we have Nicola Wyatt and Sylvie Kuanda, co-founders of Soundways Foundation. So what does inclusive or ethical technology look like to you? And why is it vital that developers are aware of the diversity of their potential audiences and users? That's a key question. And as we've seen from social media scandals, for example, there are huge platforms out there with enormously advanced processes behind the user experiences that they offer. And we've seen some very worrying and concerning issues with the use of these large platforms that can be skewed and biased and lead to huge problems for the people who are using them. So I'd like to start with Charlotte, please, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you've done. For example, I know the Envisions project that we can see on the Feminist Internet website, and we'll put a link to that in the notes that go with this pod, asks what agency we have to question the amount of control that an AI exerts over our experiences and how well placed we are to challenge the real world consequences, injustices and harms that AI can impose, particularly as it disproportionately targets marginalised people. So please kick off for us today, Charlotte. Thanks so much, Rose. Yes. And so I am Charlotte. And as you've already said, I'm one of the co-founders of a collective called Feminist Internet. And I'm also a research fellow at the Creative Computing Institute, which is part of University of the Arts London. And both of those roles, which I'm incredibly grateful to, to be part of, are very much about working at uh, intersections of sort of technology development and creative practice and society, really. Um, so everything that I do tends to be focused on how can we think about social problems? How can we communicate about social problems? And how can we imagine and sort of hold a vision for more equitable techno-social futures by bringing together amazing people that want to engage in creativity, technology development, and um, in some cases, sort of fe feminist design methods, or in some cases, approaches around design justice or participatory co-design and things like that. So that's where I find myself operating. 
in terms of what inclusive technology looks like to me and why why I think it's vital, for me, inclusivity is part of the sort of broader question of equality. And I, I like to sort of frame it in those terms because I help I think it helps us to understand it as part of something connected to very long-term structural societal issues that underpin the ways in which technology can exacerbate something like bias or actually more realistically, you know, racism, sexism, colonialism, classism, xenophobia, those things that technology can amplify are are systemic. And I think that's an important way to, to think about inclusion and to think about equality. And when when technologies do kind of come from that space, they do tend to be transparent. They do offer meaningful choices. They 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 try not to exploit <laughs> humans or or the planet. They do offer redress if people are harmed. You know, they they actively seek to understand and minimize potential unintended consequences. So I, I think that's that's enough <laughs> for starts. Thank that's you. Great. Thank you, Charlotte. I think the issue around transparency is super important and also getting people together as you're doing as a community to think and imagine a better future, basically, seems to me an, an important way to go. Daisy, I'd love to, I love the name of your company, Make Good Trouble. I just think that's brilliant. Um, so I'm hoping you're going to tell me something about how that came about. But it feels to me as if learner-centred or user-centred design is really in in the blood of your organisation. So please let us know your thoughts and a little bit about Make Good Trouble. Thank you, Rose. Um, Yeah, I'm Daisy Cresswell, founder of Make Good Trouble. Uh, We are a youth-led social enterprise and everything we do and make is co-produced by young people, co-created by young people. And that's crucial. The reason the company's called Make Good Trouble is I was labelled a troublemaker at school. I went to a very rough school in a very rough part of uh, just outside Brighton. And you kind of live up to the label when you're when that happens. And that's certainly true of me. And I thought I would be unemployable. And then I found the creative agent, the creative side of life and realised actually it was an asset to be. Uh, to use the other side of your brain, the creative side of your brain. I'm a parent and I'm also an employer of young people. And I was just thinking, actually, when you were talking there, Charlotte, that I'm also, it's it's kind of accidental, but we're an all-female organisation. We have had um, other people from different genders who are, have joined us, albeit briefly, but uh, as a core, we are uh, all women, but it isn't deliberate, actually. Um, a lot of what I have found, actually, is most parents who speak out tend to be female and to be the mothers, which is a shame. You know, that I'm not saying that the dads haven't got stuff to say because they have, but it, it, it's a very different dynamics. You've got all sorts of layers there. But one of the things I wanted to mention is we're our, our, our work is centred around young people's emotional well-being and mental health issues. We make content with them. So we make radio shows and podcasts and short films. But um, one of the things I we, we're getting more and more into is um, evaluation, peer-led evaluation. So young people evaluating interventions that have been designed for them, but they've been designed by adults, which is one of the issues. And you're talking about agency there, um, you know, people having agency and control over what those interventions might be. And I was talking to um, uh, Professor Lucy he- Easthope the, um, the other day on we're doing a project with her about the effects of COVID and the effects of living in 
uh, perma crisis on young people and families. And she said one of the things that she's noticed is that the adults have broken the moral and social contract with the young people. And that's a really interesting point, I think, because it's about time that the young people had more power to have a say. We are doing a lot of work, qualitative research, with a technique called most significant change. And the point about that is it's completely unbiased because it doesn't have any preloaded questions or pre-assumptions, if that's the right words. Um, And the empowerment of young people to run those projects is phenomenal to see. I definitely want to come back to that. I love the idea of the co-creation of the evaluation. I think that's so important. Um, And I'd love to know more about this most significant change as a qualitative concept. I think that's really interesting. I'm Sylvie, co-founder of Soundways Foundation. We founded the charity about, I say, a year and a half ago. I have three children, two of whom are profoundly deaf. Basically, we saw sort of inequalities when speaking about disability and how children view themselves through the narrative that adults kind of talk about, really. And so uh, to cut a very long story short, we started a project called Action for Captions, and it sort of was birthed during the pandemic, um, where we want to use technology for a purpose. So we want to put live captioning into mainstream uh, classrooms so that it makes education accessible for deaf students. But what we've been finding in our pilot schemes is that actually it's benefiting a huge number of children. So even though our charity is supporting deaf children and young adults, we find that it's supporting other children with other SEN or children with additional uh, English as additional language. And basically, it's all about making the spoken language visible and realizing that education is pretty linear. And with more and more SEN students going into mainstream and seeing that schools have a lack of funding and resources, we're having to look into tech and see how that can support the classroom environment to help all the ways that children learn. Yes, hello, I'm Nicola, the other co-founder of Soundways Foundation. Yeah, in putting the software, so speech-to-text uh, software into schools, and often it's it's there already, um, just not being used. We're finding uh, it's actually the hardware that's the, the difficulty, um, and actually you know, teachers to to know about it and use it. And we're realizing, you know, across the state system that that hardware can be anything and everything. Um, whilst the software could be used, in many cases, it, it actually um, isn't able to be used because of their mixed systems that, that, that that's there. So we're actually finding, yes, the software, can, you know, the software's great to be there and is free, but actually the better stuff is obviously paid for and the education system can't afford that. So in using the free the free software um, and the battles with teachers and, and uh, the hard- hardware, um, we've, we're really also sort of seeing a number of areas where it could be developed further um, to really uh, meet the needs of the children. Um, just a, a quick example is we're using um, a bit of software at the moment that's in, in most of the school systems and it's only available in US English. Um, and it really works 
best with southern accents. Um, so if we're sort of trying to extend it into Wales or Scotland, we might have more uh, difficulty in doing that. So we're sort of seeing these sort of regional difficulties alongside, obviously, you know, the, the starting point of of the uh, the inequity from the from the outset of accessible learning. That's fascinating. Can I just ask you to clarify something for me there about the hardware? Could you just explain a little bit more about what those hardware issues are? Because I think that'd be really useful for listeners. Yeah, well, so we're seeing obviously some uh, schools are Microsoft denominated, others use Google. Um, they may be on a different Windows system. Um, we obviously we're trying to get the captioning box to be on top all, always. Um, and then the flicking between PowerPoint or whether you're in um, Google slides, it's it means that a teacher to get captioning on and working throughout the day has to reopen windows, has to check the microphone input and the output, not lose sound. All of that is, is above and beyond what a teacher should do in a class. They're there to teach and, and, and deliver to 30 students or more in, in, in many cases and not to sort of solve the or troubleshoot the technology. So that, that's really what we're finding. And ultimately, you want to walk into a classroom, turn it on, it captions. That's your starting point. That's really helpful. Thank you. I think that that's cleared that up. And it's interesting as we move on to the the second area that I want to pick up on. And I'm going to start with Daisy this time um, around user agency, because I think that user agency is something that's key. And it's already come up in the the comments that, that you've all made. You know, it's broadly about our ability as individuals to shape the world and, and in this instance, to shape the world through technology um, and our ability to do that is also impacted by our awareness of our ability to do that. So I want to come to Daisy first to ask you about what you feel from a user agency perspective, the work you're doing contributes. You know, how is it building user agency and how important is that to the young people that you work with. I was very struck by what you said about your own history of being labelled a troublemaker, you know, and yet somehow you developed the agency to become a business owner and to support lots of other people. So you clearly found a route to bring about change in the world. Thank you, Rose. Yeah, I think being cross and being frustrated is a very, very powerful thing. So you have that for long enough, you're going to kind of Put that put, the thing about make good trouble is trying to use that energy of of a teenager. We particularly work with teenagers who are frustrated, and that is a huge amount of energy which can then be misplaced and put in the wrong place. And if you can guide that into something where they have, as you say, agency in decision making, one of the things I love about most significant change, the research uh, technique, is it's all about story collecting. So you 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 teach. We have young um, people who are trained in in MSc, and they can then train other young people. We try and stand right at the back. You know, we're not we're not we, we everything we do is led by the youngsters. But the the thing about that is there's two things that are really important. One is they learn the art of active listening. But in that you can you know there's a lot of empathy goes on there. Um, obviously, it's all safeguarded that the technique and and the way the, the training and everything else. But you also there's something so powerful about someone being heard and someone saying a lot of marginalised children are not heard. They don't have the avenue to be heard, and so 
MSC allows this, um, and you do it more than once. You have to story collect over a period of time in order to then understand what the most significant change has been in the lives of that young person according to the programme. And it, and it's long term. So you might do an MSC program over two years because you've got to monitor to, to the change. It needs to be a program that's run for a length of time. My, my argument is all programs that are helping young people should be long term. They're all funded too short in too short spurts and you can't do that then. But it's something really important about them that it helps their confidence. They then learn techniques of how to guide a conversation, have a conversation. A lot of the ki- the kids that we work with are what I call visual learners. They're brilliant with tech, but they couldn't. They're not necessarily. Uh, one child said about that. This is an autistic child. Said I, I'm good at writing. I can write, but I don't understand what I'm writing. You know. And if you think about education, my daughter says this. You know, mum for years I was taken into a class and talked at for however long, and then shuffled onto another room and talked at. The way that the, the society has moved on, education, schools education hasn't. And it's the same with the law, actually. If you look at the, the legal system, hasn't moved on quick enough for things like social media where it's gone wrong. But I think also one of the downsides for young people is they have been exposed to every type of content you can imagine through social media that is uncurated and not safeguarded. And those, a lot of those social media channels are designed to make you addicted to them because they're designed with Vegas style techniques to keep you coming back. So there's so many layers of issues there, but allowing somebody to have time to talk to one another face to face, there's something really important about registering body language. We've all done it where we've texted our partner and they've misinterpreted what you've said. And then the fight has ensued when you didn't mean it to. Uh, And I speak for myself there and I'm sure everybody else has had that similar situation. And my daughter actually now, one of my youngest, my youngest is applying for uni and she's just been asked to make a two minute video. So we are assuming now she's not going to be interviewed. And I think that's an incredible shame. How can you possibly pick up on the spontaneity of where a conversation is going and the importance of where that might lead? And just final remark is we did a, a pilot for story collection. Uh, in a school with three lads who didn't know each other from three different age groups. And they came in and our, one of our young person who's trained led the session. We sat behind the boys. So they forget the adults are in the room because they're teenagers. And it turned out that all three had siblings with disabilities and the school didn't have a clue about that. They were astonished. Now, they might have then made them more empathetic to their their needs because these kids were known to the safeguarding teams. So again, it's so important to have a mechanism. And MSC mechanisms are really easy. Well, easy is not the right word. Let's say they're simple to adopt. Uh, And they're really empowering. And I'm just such an advocate. I'm just saying I want a story collector in every classroom. By being a story collector, you become a storyteller, because you're going to repeat some of those stories that make you feel that you heard that make you feel that you're not alone. Young people, then they're not alone. They're not you know, there's other people out there going through similar things. So it's a it's a great it's a great mechanism, I think. That sounds amazing. The power of story should never be underestimated. It's an enormously important communication tool, but one we have to enable people to take part in, as you say, to tell their story, to listen, to feel that their story has value. And and agree about this over time. There isn't a quick fix, is there, in this space? No quick fix at all. Sylvie, Nicola, I'm not sure which of you is going to speak first to this issue around user agency, but please do let us know your thoughts. We, we thought about this and, you know, I like what 
Daisy was saying about sometimes when you harness that anger in the right way, um, you know, Nick and I moaned a lot about sort of where our children were at and how they were viewed in education. And as I mentioned before, one of the solutions was trying to look at live captioning in classrooms. And we've, we're doing a huge pilot scheme and that's how we know Daisy because she's doing um, MSc in our pilot schools. But we, we think it's important to hear from the deaf students that we are hoping to help from. I think that unfortunately everything we noticed was quite downstream. So the whole idea from the pandemic was my children struggled to access online learning. And that's because it wasn't designed in a way that could be, um, I guess, accessible to everybody. And that started conversations with not only them, but their deaf peers about what is it actually like in mainstream? How, how did you even deal with it? And, you know, things came out like for like the, the more confident ones, they would always be putting their hand up. For the less confident ones, they would sort of start copying what other people are doing. And we thought, well, that's that's not giving you independence, is it? That's sort of taking away independence and making everything sort of downstream. And I think the idea of live captioning is brilliant and we've seen it work and we've had very positive feedback. But we are, want to do our research slowly. We want to see what the impact is on everybody in the classroom. Because I think if we were to roll it out tomorrow throughout the whole nation, I don't think it will work. I think it will be quite distracting for a lot of people. There needs to be a constant feedback loop that we should be getting. Also figuring out best practices. What, what, what lessons are best place for live captioning? Where do the children need it most? Yeah, I just wanted to add really, you know, hearing those those stories from our children and that is downstream and, you know, after a while that, you know, having to wait to ask what they're supposed to be doing is, is you know, it, it takes its toll. But it also it becomes of no surprise when you learn and look at the statistics that deaf children or deaf uh, people are twice as likely to have poor mental health. So you sort of feel like these are early departure points uh, where you, know, you don't have that control in your life. You know, the words with deafness, particularly, you know, isolation and, with, and being withdrawn sort of you know words used and you can see how that can happen so if you can use technology to actually mean you can have greater control in your life of your learning and how you interact with that content it we just feel that that is is so powerful and actually it's, it's using technology well in that respect so long as it doesn't come to the detriment of others and that's that's what Sylvia's saying there <clears throat> to make sure we know and that's really interesting, isn't it? And something we'll come on to in a moment, this idea that, you know, there's a diverse population in the classroom and, and trying to make sure that, that everybody benefits. So understanding the impacts on everybody. And also this use of the, the, the story, it seems to me a great way of evaluating what's going on in a longitudinal way, which enables that, that moving away from this idea that there's some short-term fix which there never is. You know, there's an emergency response in an emergency, but that's all it is. It's it's the long term that matters. So collecting that evidence over time seems to, to give you the, the, the information you need to see where benefit is being gained and where there might be challenges. Uh, but it also empowers the students at the same time. So it speaks to the user agency as well as the evidence piece, which is great. 
Charlotte, I know you've thought a lot about user agency in your work. So I'd love to come to you next. Tell us a little bit about how you perceive user agency and how you think we can build it more effectively in individuals. Thanks, Rose. Yeah, I mean, your question actually made me think back to somebody who really inspired me when I was doing my doctoral research. And she's an artist, a kind of legendary internet artist called Olia Lialina. And she wrote about this idea she had called the Turing Complete User. The idea was that Turing Complete Users are people who are able to kind of find their own ways to navigate through technologies. And they are not necessarily the ways that the um, people that made the technology were expecting. And so she gives an example of just deciding, for example, not to use Twitter, but informing yourself about the world at breakfast through your own website or having two Twitter accounts and logging into one on Firefox and one in Chrome. Just little personal day-to-day hacks that mean that you are more in control of the ways that technology plays out in your own life. And I think that's just been a real inspiration to me as a sort of general principle about not thinking that the power always lies elsewhere, that there are small things that we can do day to day to kind of modify the way we engage. So I find that really inspiring. I think from the point of view of what we try to do at at Feminist Internet to encourage agency, a lot of the time it is about that kind of education piece, the awareness raising, trying to find ways to make complicated issues about technologies accessible to audiences by presenting them in a particular way, but also encouraging people to see themselves as the creators of technology and not just the consumers or kind of users of technology. So when you, you know, when you do a, a an intensive week with young people and you walk them through the process of like building their own chatbot, for example, or in our case, like feminist chatbots, you do, I think, create a sense of agency because they are now learning, well, actually, technology is something that I can not only build, not only use, but I can build as well. And I think seeing ourselves as stakeholders in the development of technologies is, is sort of, you know, really helpful. I mean, for that to happen in a meaningful way, you need the people who have the power and the sort of like production prowess to, to find ways to engage people in that process. But I think it is a really, really important part of, of, of agency. And to go back to your point about transparency earlier, that's crucial as well, because how can we have agency to make choices when we don't understand the choices that we're being offered? Um, so, you know, I think that's uh, classic, like terms and conditions that are eligible example is, you know, is, um, a case in point. Classic and deeply frustrating, isn't it? And Very. often they point you to other documents. And then when you don't go and try and read those documents, they either don't exist or they're even more impenetrable. And, and it just feels like the wrong way to go. And, and that point you make about the power, I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? That that the people for whom things are not working so well, just don't have the power a lot of the time. And that impacts on their agency and impacts on, on what they're able to do to bring about change. 
And so that takes me to the sort of final formal question before we have a more free-flowing discussion. You know, what can we demand of technology or of technology providers in particular so that it will cater for people from diverse backgrounds, you know, underrepresented communities, unheard voices, which we've heard quite a bit about today, this, this idea of you know, people's voices just not being heard. Is it about different data sets? Is it about having more people involved in the design of the technologies? Is it about access? You know, it's probably all of those things. But what do each of you think that we could do as a kind of, you were saying about shouting loud, being frustrated, what could we demand that might help to improve the way that a diverse population can benefit from from our technologies? And this time, I'd like to to start uh, with Sylvie and Nicola, although you said it was always going to be Sylvie who would speak first out of the two of you, so I'm assuming I'm starting with Sylvie. Yeah, it's, I think it's just because in case I forget something, Nicola will always kind of back me up. <laughs> I thought about this quite a lot. I mean, I think, you know, I can only really speak about my personal experiences. And when I think of technology, I think of the technology that's attached to my children's head and how phenomenal it is and how technology has given them the ability to access sound when 20, 30 years ago, they, they would be full-time signers. And that's fantastic. But that technology is designed for my type of family, which is a Western family that has been lives in a country where I haven't had to pay for the cochlear implants. And we've been given all the speech and language therapy that the children have needed. And when I think of where I'm from, I'm a first generation immigrant. My father's from Burkina Faso. My mom's Colombian. And I think of the communities that they come from. And if you're deaf in those communities, technology doesn't, I mean, it doesn't even touch the surface. It just doesn't go anywhere near you. And then I was also sort of thinking if we had come to this country and I had been deaf and my parents would have had to use technology to help me, they wouldn't have been able to access that. You know, there's that sort of layer of needing to be able to speak the language well, being able to know how to use technology, you know, and then use it for the purpose to help your child. So I think currently right now, when I look at sort of the people that we're trying to help and all the families that we speak to, there's a big divide between the families that are capable and able to fight for their children and use the right language to the families that can't at all. And there's already an inequality there, you know, hearing deafness. But then within sort of disability, there's an even bigger inequality when if you can't sort of um, be a, a mouthy advocate for your child because you just can't you know speak the language or or have the the knowledge of all this paperwork that you need to be able to to have like you know we have educational healthcare plans these are huge documents where i feel like you need a phd to be able to write them you know so um yeah there needs to we need to get to a point where it's 
it's even technology isn't equal and using it as a purpose is fantastic and it's improving, but it's not improving for everybody. Well, I, I think I was, maybe I should be sort of kind to technology for a moment as we're all sort of you know ripping it apart. But um, I mean, I, I do feel that you know it, it, technology is being used very well in it for as assistive technology in in education, um, and it and I think that meets needs particularly with for sensory needs. I think it's really you know a, a, a benefit. It's just how do you, you know, there are multiple needs and how do you knit them all together in what, in a cohesive, useful way in the classroom? Um, I think that's the sort of challenge, perhaps more, you know, less about sort of, you know, how to make technology better. It's how do you fit it all together and actually serve society in the best way? Interesting. Yes. I, I love this mouthy advocate I've written down and I was thinking, I get it, you know, that that you can only be mouthy if you've got the language and that there are often so many barriers in these I, these education healthcare plans. We've been talking about those a bit and they're huge and it's just such an enormous process for somebody to have to go through um, to get some help for their children. Um, and I understand what you're saying there, Nicola, about the, the, the variety of, of needs, multiple different needs, and some of those needs are being much better served than others. So there is a case for trying to, to give people that voice to simplify the process through which they have to go to be able to access the technology and to be able to explain what their or their child's need really is. It's not straightforward at all, is it? Daisy, I'm going to come to you next and ask you what your thinking is about what we can demand with our, with our mouthy advocacy. <laughs> what can we demand from technology and from technology developers uh, that would improve uh, the way that technology can meet the needs of a diverse population? Thank you, Rose. Um, well, I've got so many notes, but I think if I had to choose one thing, it would be about kindness. Technology itself, just that word, is cold. And there's such assumptions around it that it is a male thing that kids, you know, you know, I'm going back to the gender divide now, but they know that it isn't something that's necessarily picked up on by uh, girls. Um, maths is the one um, one subject where girls fall lower than boys. And I, for one, used to always say I'm crap at maths. And yet I run two businesses and, you know, the finance of that and and doing budgets and everything else is all part of it. They don't teach that at school, which is annoying. But but I think there's something very important about kindness and emotion and not emotion that's based on addiction uh, to just keep you there. There's something really horrible about technology when it comes to making money and being in a capitalist society where it's all about, right, how many clicks can we get, whether they're good or bad, it doesn't matter. And I think there is a huge need to change the narrative for best practice and that is based on that makes you feel good that you can that you can then feel included. But going back to some of the points already raised, I think there is a huge divide into the haves and have nots of who can actually afford the technology as well, because some of the vulnerable kids we work with don't even have phones. And yet there's an assumption that all kids have got a phone and they haven't. So that question is so huge. I, I, I feel a bit of a loss to have one thing but i think it's i guess if it was one thing it's just to make sure that it's that that if it's about young people that their 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 inclusion in the development of technology isn't piecemeal 
and it isn't is in a tick box exercise. It's actually something that's long running. Because if you want a if you want a coercive society or a society that's at least a little bit uh, happier, we need some good news, right? This is, uh, and I think shouting about best practice is really key, really key to change the narrative up there. That's interesting. I, I like that. And I love the idea of kindness. I don't think we put anything like enough emphasis on kindness and compassion. I think those two things. And, and technology is cold. And, you know, my background's in artificial intelligence. And you know, I'm often saying to people, you know, AI has no kindness. It has no compassion. It's not human. It can mimic emotion. It doesn't feel emotion and we do and I think we underestimate the importance of those feelings Daisy you wanted to say something. Yeah, I just wanted to add one thing actually when I, one of my first job well my first job out of college I went I did graphic design at St Martin's was for the body shop for Anita Roddick way back when and there was a thing that we learned through their merchandising department which was how to shop the shop so when you go in the m and always used to do it the carpets are in are in um sort of zones and the floor makes you guides you like a yellow brick road to shop the shop so you try and it tries to make you buy all those impulse buys at the counter when you're about to purchase all of that but what if that journey was based on kindness and a positive emotion somebody once said to me when you're on an airplane instead of coming around with duty free why don't they tell you what's below your feet there's a beautiful mountain under here and there's a bit of education going on and you know, when you feel better about that than some crap perfume that you didn't want to buy, you know, I'm digressing a little bit, but I think there's something really important about guiding somebody in a way that could be really, really positive instead of really negative, because it's just been negative for so long. It's, it's. I think there's a revolution. I'm telling all my young people, vote, 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 vote. It is important to, to use that voice, isn't it? But so much is driven so much of what we experience is driven by the bottom line and making big profits and of course what you're saying may not make a big profit in terms of you know money but in terms of social benefit huge charlotte over to you for your your feelings what should we be demanding of the technology and the technology providers yeah thanks rose i mean i have to say this question does press on both my sort of optimistic and cynical side. And I was reflecting on the difference between what can we demand and what should we demand? Because, you know, I think on the one hand, demanding things from big tech is incredibly difficult unless not meeting the demand represents a significant dent in profit for them <laughs> to, you know, to just expand on the point you've just made. On the other hand, there are many things and and all of the all of the panelists have, have, have spoken about really important things we should be demanding of technology companies. So I think that's that's one thing to just flag. But the the optimist side in me is very inspired by increasing cases where, for example, tech company worker protests or public protests do lead to change. I mean, with the A-level algorithm fiasco in the UK a couple of years ago, students gathering outside the Department for Education chanting F the algorithm did lead to a significant action. So I, I'm very sort of heartened by the feeling that we can place demands on entities 
And that is probably best done en masse. Yeah, you know, sort of like individual attempts to do that are difficult. But when there's enough momentum and enough kind of critical mass behind it, it can lead to significant change. So, so I'm really encouraged by that. And um, I just, I agree with all of the things that everyone else has said about what we should be, what we should be asking. And um, I think that point about kindness and kind of putting the humanity at the center, even though I, I don't think it's easy to appeal to big tech on the grounds of just doing the right thing and like just being kind and just being lovely. Um, I still think that we have to relentlessly pursue that goal. Um, as a society and as a community, regardless of the outcome, because it's just only way that we will be able to build better technologies for everybody. Absolutely. That's a great way to conclude that sentence, actually. You know, it is the only way, but it is hard. How do you make kindness appealing to the bottom line? I don't have the answer, but I do think that you're right about community, bringing people together, momentum, you know, en masse, but giving people a voice, and all of you are doing that, giving people the tools to be able to be part of that community who are trying to bring about change seems fundamentally important so that they can access the resources, they can be a mouthy advocate, so you know they 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 can do all of those things. So just finally, in the last few minutes, and we do only have a few minutes left, I'm afraid. I'd love to know if any of you have a point you'd like to make that we don't feel we've covered, or if you'd like to pick up on something somebody else has said, and just shove your hand up, and and we'll see you, and we can bring you in. I was just thinking about um, one of the issues we have as an organisation is funding. And that goes back to the whole thing of tech that you can get funding for tech if you can prove you can make a profit. But that then assumes that a whole load of people are going to pay for the service through the piece of technology and the poorest can't. So there's a big issue there. But the more and more we're seeing um, a a need for return on investment, but also a return on social investment. And actually, there is a way of make of them saying by saving money on something else. It's a bit like advertising, isn't it? You either reduce something or you increase something. But there, there's there was a there was a, a program done in Peterborough, I do believe, where they uh, tried to see if they could reduce the amount of repeat offenders. And by doing that, you're then reducing the amount of money that the government have got to put into that prison. And it was all done through a social contract. And um, I haven't got the details in front of me, but it's a similar kind of model, I think. And if you look at children who are excluded from school and put into a PRU, pupil referral unit, which by its very nature is a vile expression. And a lot of head teachers who run PRUs are changing the names of those to just be a school. But it costs five times as much to put a kid into a PRU than it does to keep them in mainstream education. So if you're talking about, you know, kindness maybe isn't the thing, it's 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 giving them a voice and understanding context and then make empowering them to be able to stay in mainstream education. So there's something important there, I think. There is something important, I agree. And I can see Nicola wants to come in. Go for it, Nicola. Yeah, only from what you said there, um, it's the you know it's the cost of not doing something, isn't it? And I think that's the the point here massively. That you know all of these things, if you actually take action up front and do it in the right way and the kind way, um, and you know in the, in the serves the community or the broadest number of people, then the 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 social cost or whatever cost, however you want to call whatever you want to call it or however you want to calculate it, is is uh, you know reduced. So I think that's the that's got to be the 
the momentum and the motivation. That makes such a lot of sense. And then maybe that's where community action, you know, can have power in helping people to collate the information about, well, you could save this, you know, X million pounds by doing X or, you know, Y million pounds by doing Y. I do worry that we know that the economies of the world that flourish are the ones with the best education systems, but it doesn't necessarily seem to manage to bring about the kind of change that would empower those more um, viable economies. So the connection is difficult to make sometimes. And I wonder whether in that instance, part of it is to do with the fact that the people who were in the key decision-making places often have quite short-term horizons and what we're talking about is something that's much longer term. But it's certainly, it's got to be worth fighting for. I'm going to come around to each of you just as a last point to say, right, in 30 seconds, what would you like to leave our listeners with as your, your key point for, for, for the episode? And it'd be about whatever you like, as long as it's obviously connected to equality, diversity, inclusion. Um, who'd like to go first? I'm going to steal this from Nicola. Sorry, Nicola. But what I love is I, I want people, when they walk into a room, read the room. Who's in the room? And what technologies will help them access whatever you're trying to, to, to say or to provide? I think there is so much out there, um, maybe too much, but there, well, maybe not too much, but there is so much out there that can help so many people that think about that. How can you make whatever you're saying, more accessible, whether it is you're deaf or blind or, or, or speak a different language, it doesn't matter. So yeah, do some research, see how you can help people, I think. Thank you, Sylvia. That's great. Charlotte, your 30 second leaving point. <laughs> I would say if you're feeling depressed about big tech, or if you're feeling the moral panic around, you know, chat GPT and how it's taking over the world, listen to this podcast and like, remember these amazing people <laughs> like uh, who are really pushing to make a difference. And remember that if enough of us make these small contributions, we will make a big difference. And there's a lot of hope in that. And um, yeah, thank you to all of you for your amazing work. Thanks, Charlotte. Yeah, absolutely. We need to stay positive. Things can be done. Absolutely. Daisy. I think my takeout would have to be listen to children because they are hilarious, ingenious, they're frustrating, but they are brilliant and they're hugely underestimated and they should go to the top of the chain because we failed them, I think. Not us here because I think we're doing some great work, but too many adults in power have failed them and it's about time that was changed. Absolutely right. Nicola, your last words. I think it's only really how we all need to work together. And it's, you know, there's great things out there and there's great people. And the more that that is actually connected, and I don't mean just, you know, in, a, in a one glorious hug, but just, you know, to actually truly make it work on the ground for everyone. And actually say not not in silos, but together. I couldn't agree more. And if this little pod can do something to bring people together, and as I say, in the pod notes, we'll put connections to the work you're doing. Um then that would be a great thing. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this episode. It's been lovely to have you all together and fantastic thoughts, answers, very, very thoughtful contributions. Thank you so much. We really do appreciate your time and your contributions. 
I hope wherever you're listening, you found our discussion informative and practical and useful and that's something you can take away to use yourself or maybe share with your teams, your colleagues, your friends. If you want more information on the series and our lovely guests, please visit the EdTech Podcast website, which is www.theedtechpodcast.com and connect with us via social media. Uh, to see how educators keeping evidence at the heart of edtech, go to www.educateventures.com and join our conversations there or on LinkedIn. You've been listening to the Evidence-Based EdTech podcast series, and this is a collaboration between the EdTech podcast and Educate Ventures. And thank you from me as your host today, Rose Luckin, and from our great guests, all talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and ethics. 